Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's September 10th, 2018, and because I am a cheesehead, we have to start off with one of these great moments for America. Trubisky, look out, loses the ball on a fourth down play, Nick Perry. And 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 Green Bay is going to win it. And just like that, the Green Bay Packers season begins with, with a game for the ages. Joining me, Jonathan Last of the Weekly Standard. I mean, I don't know, Jonathan, whether you're a Packer fan, uh, but I mean, this was, this was, a, a, you know, I can't wait for the movie where, where, where Aaron Rodgers goes out, he's injured. He comes back. It's this dramatic moment. They're down by 20 points and they win with this last minute, I guess it was two minutes to go. Pastor Randall Cobb to win the game. And of course, it's not just any game. It's the home opener. It's against the hated Chicago Bears. I mean, how can America not be on a total high today? 16 and 0 is right there for the taking. Absolutely. You guys are ready to run the table. I have a question. Sure. Are the Bears the Packers' most hated rival? Like, yes. I, I, this is Midwest football, which I don't, coming as I do from the NFC East and, and being oh. a Philly guy, uh, I've never quite gotten the rivalries out there. So you guys hate hate the Bears more than the Lions? Oh, absolutely. No, no right. question about it. They're not, not even close. They're, they're, <clears throat> there are pockets of, uh, of Packer Nation that really despise the Vikings. But I, but I think the, the visceral loathing goes back to, you know, the many, many, many years of the Packer-Bear rivalry, which I think is probably the most iconic rivalry in the NFL. And and does this, does the Viking thing, uh, is that tied to the Favre uh, mutiny when he went there, or did that predate Favre leaving the, the pack and going to the Vikings? Predated, predated, but obviously escalated rather dramatically. So that I mean, was even more of a shiv than I realized. Uh, at the yes. Time. Oh, that was that was painful. The only thing he could have done worse was to go with the Bears, which I think would have made everyone lose their mind. I remember Hayes losing his mind actually back when when Favre was going over. It was so entertaining to watch. I loved it. Of course, back in the day, I was <sighs> fired with the Andy Reid Eagles, and so I knew that every year held the promise of twelve and four, and then blowing it in the NFC Championship game. Well, at least you have something to look forward to. Yeah, well, not anymore. We're ready to repeat. I okay, now, it's a new dawn in Philadelphia. It's uh, it's going to be great. Now, for those of you who are tuning in, expecting that we're going to have you know the the eighty nine hundredth podcast about Donald Trump, we'll probably get to him a little bit later. But but uh, I, I want to talk about a couple of other things, including what I thought was a very contrarian piece, Jonathan, that you wrote in the weekly standard to say that you were going against the grain on all of this or at least the woke grain on all of this is putting it mildly you are not siding with serena williams in fact you argue that she got what she deserved in the face of a social media avalanche suggesting that serena williams what happened to her was was racist sexist and anti-motherhood so so let's let's go back and talk about this rather extraordinary moment in in American sports, which reminded us that that sports and that there's no separating sports from the culture wars anymore. Right. Everything must be seen in the context of of the culture wars. Yes. Uh, but it's not that extraordinary moment because this is the third time that this has happened to Serena Williams just at the U.S. Open. I mean, this is, you know, uh, so I would say I'm I am a I am not a casual tennis fan. I am a, a pretty super large size tennis nerd. Uh, and I 
I am an anti Serenite. I mm. I love her sister like you couldn't believe. Venus is one of my favorite women's players ever. Uh, she is just like the sweetest person, the most gracious athlete. Her game is beautiful and silky smooth. And Serena has always just. I mean, she. I did. I. I should say up front. I absolutely acknowledge her greatness. She is in, you know, so she was going for a 24th major. The truth is she took like three years off in the early 2000s where she just wasn't interested in tennis. If she had been focused the whole time, she would probably have 30 majors right now. That's how awesome she is. Uh, she is not a cheater. This is, you know, one of the, you could say a lot of, I, I myself would say a lot of negative things about Serena. She has never, ever been a cheater. She is a fair play type. Uh, we have seen cheaters in women's tennis, like Justine Hennon, who is Serena's mm -hmm. like worst mm -hmm. rival. Justine Hennon, just a garbage person. Like one of the, <laughs> Justine Hennon was like a professional wrestling villain in the world of tennis. She was just the worst. Uh, that being said, you don't, you don't often, by the way, see comparisons between professional wrestling and tennis. So, I know, you know, I know. Well, this is points for Jonathan right off out of the bat. You know, as a devotee of both, I myself yeah. often try to draw parallels between them. Um, so what happened to Serena was she well, and, and we, you describe it as the U.S. Open Serena Williams disaster, all in caps. So yes, this, this is the moment. Yeah, I mean, do people know enough about this? Do we need to, to let's give them a little bit of background? Or, because let's face it, we probably have a lot of you know people nerds you know saying, "I are you talking about Donald Trump's tweet?" So let's let's back up. What was happening? Serena Williams melting down okay. in this in this match. So Serena drops the first set to Naomi Osaka two six. She's really getting blown off the court. Uh, she is we're early in the second set and she is given a code violation warning by the chair umpire because the chair umpire notices that her coach is coaching her from the box. Now, the way the rule is written, uh, you're not allowed to coach from the box. Um, the but the offender is not the player. The offender is the coach. So it does not matter if you, the player, are getting anything or even paying attention from the coach. Uh, you have people who are in your box who you are responsible for their behavior, and uh, your coach is one of them. Uh, this is something which happens often, but not in as people are saying all the time. People who are trying to defend Serena say that everybody's coach coaches them from the sideline, and that's like saying everybody does pot. Mm -hmm. um, it is not true. A lot of people have smoked marijuana over the course of their lifetimes. It is simply not true that 100% of people like, you know, have done pot. It's just one of these things that is made up to make people who do it feel better about themselves. Um, so, so she gets this violation and it's just Most a people warning. who smoke pot, by the way, then, then feel better about themselves. Though. Yeah. I, I, so, I, I mean, that's, so I've heard. Okay. Um, so, so she gets a warning and all this is, is a warning. There are no points, uh, being, being exchanged here. Uh, and she freaks out. So she goes after the chair umpire, Carlos Ramos, who uh, who himself actually has been party to giant scandals, not scandal, but giant incidents before, which being back in, I think it was 2005 when Leighton Hewitt called him a homosexual slur. And then Hewitt was sort of forced to apologize afterwards. And Ramos was just sitting there. And so he's been around this sort of thing with players going crazy in the middle of the match to apologize to her and to proclaim to the millions and millions of people watching at home that she is not in fact a cheater which is crazy but what, what she is saying you know her reaction first of all as you, as you point out the, the the coach does not deny that he was coaching i mean he said it explicitly he admitted it right i mean so there's there's yes. no there's no there's no factual dispute about this but then you know so the score is two six three four 
And Williams does something rather extraordinary. And, and you, you quote you, you quote her, for you to, att- she goes up to the, the umpire, for you to attack my character is wrong. You owe me an apology. You will never be on a court with me as long as you live. You are a liar. You owe me an apology. Say it. Say you're sorry. How dare you insinuate that I was cheating? You stole a point from me. You're a thief too. And that's the point at which he gives her a game penalty for verbal abuse. Right. And this is and I would say this is this is different than saying you're a jerk and I hate you. This is like threatening somebody's professional livelihood, saying, you know, you're not going to be on a court with me. She is Serena Williams is the most important figure in women's tennis, maybe even the most important figure just from a commercial point of view in all of tennis right now. She is immensely powerful. If the premier star in the game says that you're not going to be allowed to referee one of her matches, that's that really is pretty close to threat. Uh, now, all of this is if this was the only thing that had ever happened to Serena before, then we might just say, well, you know what? She got heated out there. Like, you know, she's a warrior. She's battling. Uh, sometimes you just wind up going over the line. But this is this is actually just part of a pattern. This is what she does. This is her move. And the two most famous examples of this are the 2009 U.S. Open semifinal against Kim Kleisters, which I think most people that was their introduction to the, the dark side of Serena, mm-hmm. where she started attacking this like meek little lineswoman and physically threatened her. Uh, do you remember this? Like, No, I don't. Oh my gosh, you have to, if you go to my piece on the Standards website, I, I have the YouTube video. It's crazy. I mean, she looks like she, like she's going to kill this woman who is probably five foot one and, you know, 104 pounds. Um, and she wound up losing the match because of that. If you go forward to 2011 in the finals of the U.S. Open against Sam Sozer, she does a similar sort of thing at the chair umpire. And she says, you know, you screwed me over last time. Don't even, you don't even get to look at me. <laughs> which is crazy right i mean this is you may not look at the queen um and wind up forfeiting points there so this is what she does and it's especially what she does in high profile matches when she's losing to players who just aren't as good as her and in all three cases osaka and in kleisters and uh sam stoser all of whom are great players Again, Serena is probably the greatest woman's player of all time. Certainly number two. If you're not willing to go all the way to number one, she's certainly the second greatest. Uh, But what she is, is she's a bully. And Mm -hmm. she is a bully because she is the giant star, right? I mean, you can do this and get away with this when you are the most powerful person. And it's strange in the way that people have fallen for this as if, you know, she's the, the poor victim being discriminated against. She's the most powerful person in tennis. If she tells an umpire that they're not going to be able to officiate one of her games, that umpire's career is probably <laughs> in a bad direction. Would well, um, she have the power to do that, though? Well, I mean, the, the, so the way tennis works, tennis is an incredibly clubby sport. Mm-hmm. And Serena cannot sign a piece of paper making it so that it never happens. However, you know, Serena welds an enormous, like all number one players and all great champions, she welds an enormous amount of power informally within the sport. Uh, and it is entirely possible that she could make it so that Carlos Ramos never sits in the, in the umpire's chair for her again. Now, this, yeah. this is not at all like a crazy thing. It's not like the NBA where LeBron James could say that uh, referee X is never going to ref his game again. The NBA like, would be like, sure he is. You know, like we have 82 games a year. We have only so many referee crews. You're going to have to deal with it. 
Well, you know, as you point out, you know, bad calls happen all the time in uh, in, in in tennis, and 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 stars who pitch fits. You know, that's that's not that unusual. But you know, really demanding in this, I'm reading right from your your, your text here, d- demanding that the official make an announcement during the match proclaiming a player's innocence. And then you have an acronym, which I'm not going to spell out here. Um, that's nothing short of insane. And that's what she was doing. She was hectoring this guy. Now, when I, I heard a very interesting debate between uh, some some umpires, female umpires this morning on one of the cable stations. And, of course, uh, you know, and, and one of them was very strongly making the point that you were making. Look, the rules are very, very clear on all of this. You know, this behavior was uh, was way, uh, you know, over a, the, the line. Um the the defense of Serena almost inevitably comes back to the context that, well, in the past, she has been a victim of racism and sexism and what she represents in the sport and and all of that. Um, but but ultimately, it comes down to should umpires make the call based on the context, you know, what they what the you know, the desired results should be or should they basically say was, you know, was this ball out? Was this ball in? did that coach violate the rules? And that's kind of the point you're making, right? I mean, what should, uh, what should we expect from umpires and referees? Well, this is, you know, it's like we're talking about the Supreme Court here, right? Like yeah. originalism versus progressivism. Do you care about the result or do you care about the rules? Um, you know, I opened my piece by saying that while this match was happening, I was at a minor league baseball playoff game. I have, we have a minor league team that we're season ticket holders to that we love very dearly in our family. And, uh, so it was an elimination game in the playoffs and our team was losing. Uh, they were down very late in the game and both they had rallied. The bases were loaded and the opposing pitcher balked. It was a very clear balk and the, the home team bench went crazy. They're shouting at the ump. The pitching coach is shouting at the ump and the umpire's response. He, he called this across the field to them was he said, I'm not going to walk in a run for that. What? Oh, whoa. And that's the sort of so this is so this is a I would say the mature person's approach to sports and officiating is to never expect perfection from the umpires because the the umpires, the refs, the officials, they're human just like us, just like the players. Players make errors. Players make mistakes. Right. They don't always do things perfectly. The umpires are going to do the same thing. They're not going to see everything. Even when they see things, sometimes they're not going to see them correctly. Like it's a really hard job if you've ever tried to referee something. Uh, So you can't ask that or even hope for it. All you can do is to ask that the the officials just do their best to make the calls in good faith, right? And so this is the the problem isn't if the umpire so misses it, the balk. The problem is if the umpire sees the balk but then decides not to call it because of the context. And, of the and that's what he was saying by he said I'm not going to call it for right. that. He basically right. said I saw the balk, but I'm not going to call it because I don't want the result to be affected in that particular Correct. way. And, and that's he, and that's really the argument about the Serena thing. Like, so is is the is the umpire supposed to not call the thing that he sees? And the I mean, you always have to understand there are two sides to this, right? So Naomi Osaka, if you're on the other side and the referee sees the coaching but then doesn't call it because Serena is the most important player in in the world and the big, like, so then I'm sorry, how's this fair to her? Right? Yeah. I mean, this is mm-hmm. so. So should the the number one player in the world and the, the greatest player of all time get calls like that or 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 rather not get calls just because of the context and because she's so great? 
Well, I don't think so. And I don't think anybody who's serious about sports thinks that. Well, the, the obvious question that we're hearing over and over again, though, is would a man have been sanctioned in the same way? Um, and, and what are the parallels? You know, what what if a male player had done the exact same thing? Are there incidents where you could say, you know, she was not treated more harshly because look at what they did to X male player? Well, so. So let me take the second, the, the corollary to that first. The corollary is, uh, has how would Serena's reaction have been different if the umpire was female? And the prior two cases, the 2009-2011 incidents, were both with female officials. Mm -hmm. And Serena went just as crazy. So that suggests that at least from Serena's side, she wasn't... She wasn't reacting differently because of perceived sexism here. She was just reacting the way she reacts to officials when she doesn't like them, which is to say she was being a bully. Mm -hmm. And on the other side with men, I, you know, to be honest, I don't, I don't think so. There, tennis is a weird sport in that you have so many personalities and the umpires are all different. They're like 12 or 15 umpires that you frequently see at the majors and they have relationships with the players that they form over long periods of time. And those relationships are always different. You can't ever, there is no perfect document to get this okay. stuff happen to him all the time. Uh, Roger Federer back before he became Roger, the group had all sorts of, of problems like this all the time. And one of the things that made Federer the great player he is back from when he was just like a top 25 mm -hmm. guy and young in his career, he used to flip out all the time and yell at the umpires. And then he just ratcheted all that down. He, he made a conscious decision. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to keep it all inside. And that's part of what made him great. Would you show them the Serena thing and say to them, I want you to emulate that. Look at the way she's reacting, and I want you to do that if you're in a, ever in a situation where the ref gives you a bad call, because you have to stand up for yourself, because if you don't, nobody else will. Would you do that, or would you look at your kid and say, don't you ever do that? If, you, if, if the umpire calls you out on a slide into home, and you think you're safe, and you jump up and tell the umpire he's never going to ref your game again, like, I'm going to ground you for a week. So which of those two, and your opinion, I would say your answer to that question would probably tells you where you are in Serena. Yeah, no, no, that, 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 that's a, that's an easy one to put it that in, in that particular way. So did, was her behavior, did her behavior afterwards when she was, uh, was somewhat gracious, uh, does that mitigate in your mind her, her bad sportsmanship? Because, you know, afterwards, you know, she did basically, you know, congratulate the winner, tell the crowd to stop booing. Um, at least ratcheted it down afterwards. Some people are saying, well, this was, this was a great moment of, of sportsmanship after the match. I think it does, actually. Uh, I very much think it does. Because uh, this was never about Naomi Osaka. You know, like this was, for, in Serena's mind, this was not about the person she was playing. It's Serena's a diva, and this was about her. Uh, and she, I think, bears no ill will towards Naomi Osaka. She, I think, did right by her at the ceremony afterwards. What she didn't done, and where I would be perfectly willing to give Serena all the credit of the world, is if in the aftermath of this, she simply said, you know what, I was out of my mind there, and that, just bad on me. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have done it bad on me. And she didn't. She doubled down and decided she wants to make this into a federal case. And that's where I think that this is just wrong. You know, she was in the wrong and she she's just refusing to own it. Okay, the obvious segue here, because you've actually made the, the, the point that you know, a lot of these debates are similar to what we debate about the U.S. Supreme Court. Actually, it's kind of a lame uh, segue. But, you know, I I was thinking over the weekend, you know, what, you know, that none of us should have been surprised by how vitriolic and theatrical the Kavanaugh hearings became. But there's there's still, you know, the the behavior of Kamala Harris and and Cory Booker 
was so over the top. It's interesting that even Politico is uh, is is comparing their their behavior to Trump, which is you know come up with you know theatrical allegations without much concern for the truth. But there was an incident over the weekend, and this and maybe it's a relatively minor one, but I'm really struck by. You're familiar with Ben Wittes, right, from Lawfare yeah. Blog? You know? Yeah. Um, really good guy. Um, I I really like Ben. I respect his work immensely. We don't always agree on everything, um, but. You know, he's taken a an absolutely untenable position, apparently. You know, he he has been urging people to vote for Democrats during the the off year election because he's so strongly anti-Trump. On the other hand, he knows and respects Brett Kavanaugh very, very strongly. And he's been pushing back or on Twitter. He was pushing back against the allegations that Brett Kavanaugh perjured himself or lied. And for his pains. He was subject to this uh, overwhelming torrent of Internet bullying, Twitter bullying from folks who say, you know, no, you know, it's not enough that we disagree with Kavanaugh or that we think that he would rule in ways that we don't like. We have to demonize him. He's a terrible, reprehensible human being. How dare you defend him? And it became all about Ben Wittes and Ben Wittes is, you know, what, 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 what relationship did he have with Brett Kavanaugh? And sometime late yesterday, uh, ben, who is actually one of the most provocative uh, voices on Twitter, put up a PSA basically saying, I'm out. I'm not going to be tweeting anymore. I'm not going to be responding anymore. And I thought, boy, what what a moment now in in our politics, you know, despite all of the talk about reaching across the party lines and bipartisanship. It's not even enough to disagree ideologically anymore that the, the and I'm sorry to go back to this word, but the tribalism is so intense that the you are to be that the demand is that you must vilify anyone on the other side and be prepared to believe something no matter how bizarre, extreme, or unsupported by the facts it is. And I think you kind of saw that in sort of a little microcosm in what happened to 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 Ben Wittes. But again, stepping back, if, you know, when when Brett Kavanaugh was appointed, when Anthony Kennedy retired, if somebody would have said, you know, this is going to be really, really viciously nasty and radioactive and you're going to see the worst elements of partisanship, no one would have been surprised. Right. I mean, th- this is the moment we live in now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think you have to make a distinction between the people running for president and the people who who aren't running for president. Right. So Cory Booker and Kamala Harris have a different set of imperatives right now, and they they're running for president. They're acting like they're running for president, uh, which say they want to be as crazy as possible and as theatrical as possible. I feel bad for Cory Booker because uh, for a guy who looked incredibly interesting five years ago as a political commodity, he looks like a guy. I mean, he looks like a, the robot version of somebody trying to play a role for the progressive base. <laughs> did you see? Yeah. Did you see the Did you see the video that our buddies at the Free Beacon put up? Laugh with, out uh, loud, funny cutting Cory Booker in with the, the George Costanza. I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad boy. It's, it's amazing. That was an instant classic because he went out there. I am Spartacus. It's my Spartacus moment only to have it you know revealed later that no, this was not Spartacus. Yeah. Uh, they no, they he released it, him on CNN, like, like insisting that no, he really could be thrown out of the Senate for this. I am the bad guy. I am so right. bad. I'm the baddest guy here. You know, you know, things are, they've gone, you know, not well for you when Michael Avenatti of all people is basically, um, you know, th- throwing shade on both, uh, Harris and Cory Booker for not delivering on on what what they promised i guess the question is whether or not this actually helps them in their presidential bid i thought i thought it made them look uh, both somewhat uh, reckless and, and and clownish but 
this all also strikes me as so familiar as having watched the same sort of vortex towards theatricality on the right. I don't need to fill in the gaps there. You know, the the, the more the more histrionic, the, the 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 more extreme folks on the right made themselves relevant by continuing to ratchet that up. And you're seeing this on the left. However, if anyone tries to point this out, there is this entrenched belief on among progressives that that there's no moral equivalency. There is no both sides that that we don't have any of the problems that the right wing has, that every problem in, in, in you know, by being post-truth or being extreme um, or being too tribal, that's all a conservative problem. And it is a conservative problem, as you and I have written and said for many years now. But the lack of willingness on the part of the Democrats and the left to recognize, you know, you may have a an incipient problem over here that you ought to take seriously because we've seen how this can spiral out of control. They're just not willing to go there. And I, and I think that's what Ben Wittes came up against as well. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing he came up against is I, I would say, and this is something I'm a bell I'm ringing again. I do this all the time. The extent to which the left acts as if they don't really believe that Trump is dangerous sort of mystifies me. Um, this performance you're seeing about Kavanaugh is exactly like you would expect to see against the judicial nominees of any generic Republican president. This is if Mitt Romney been president. You would have seen this when George W. Bush was yeah. president. You saw this, right? Um, if you really believe that Donald Trump is a dangerous figure, which Frankly, I sort of believe, um, although probably not to the extent that some people on the left say they believe it, um, then you would be thrilled that Brett Kavanaugh is who he's trying to put on the court because Brett Kavanaugh, whatever you think about him, isn't a crazy person. Right. I mean, his politics may not be your politics, but if Trump is a dangerous Caudillo type guy looking to become an incipient strongman, he wouldn't put somebody like Brett Kavanaugh. He'd put like he nominate Janine Pirro. Right. Or something like that. And I'm not being like glib here. I mean, this is, there was a real question in early 2016. What could you really trust Trump with Jeanine, with, uh, with Supreme court appointments or would he like try to put his sister up or his friends, oh, right. would Michael oh. Cohen be nominated to the Supreme court. I mean, this is the extent to which they think that they're going to fight every single political battle as if it's totally politics as usual. And all we're doing here is litigating ideological fights about abortion uh, without any regard to whether or not there are larger problems with Trump that you should be husbanding your ammunition for is really telling. And I, I it, may, it actually makes me a little sad because, again, I, I think Trump is a different type of thing and is a dangerous type of thing. Uh, but the left says that but then doesn't act like it. I completely agree with you. In fact, um, I, my, my book's coming out in paperback in the next uh, in, in the next month, and I had to write a, a, a new uh, chapter, you know, updating it. And one of the points I make in this in, in this new preface to the book is the is the is the way that the left is in danger of normalizing Donald Trump. Because if you say that 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 all conservatives, all Republicans are the same, then there's nothing distinctive about him. Then then you basically are saying that you know that that Donald Trump is well, you know, it's the logical you know, growth of a party that that nominated you know John McCain and George W. Bush and Mitt Romney. You know, they're all alike. They're all equally complicit in all of this. Well, then then there is nothing special. There is nothing you know. There's no existential crisis involved with Donald Trump. 
if he is simply, you know, one of that group. And we hate all conservatives. And this is something that that a lot of you know Trump skeptical conservatives get is that, well, you built this, you know, this is your movement. That, you know, we refuse to make any distinction between a George Will type conservative, um, you know, or a you know Bill Crystal type conservative and Donald Trump. Well. I'm not sure that that's a, it's a deeply insightful point, but it also does exactly what you say. It it essentially says, you know, let's let's you know, lump everyone together and not treat Donald Trump as a real threat, as something as something different. So, uh, and you know, and then, and then this goes back to the whole issue of whether you keep the level of hysteria dialed up to eleven all the time, so that when something genuinely horrific happens, where do you go? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what do you and say? Look, I mean, you know, I mean, I would say uh, I hope they're right, frankly. I mean, uh, believe me, nothing would relieve me more if it turns out that Donald Trump wasn't any different in character that, every, you know, we get through four or eight years without any constitutional crises and it all works out and all we have are the normal political fights and I was wrong and he wasn't any different than a normal Republican. I'll be, th- believe me, <laughs> I will be thrilled. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, I just, you know, when I look at the world we're heading towards and I, I look at the you know, the things the president says and sometimes the things he does, I worry that we're not living in a normal world here and that we, you know, we are walking around with like a 5% chance of a genuine constitutional crisis happening at any moment, which is, yeah. which is a problem. I, I, I think we're already past that point. I think that's pretty clear it isn't normal. And then I would put the, the percentages way north of 5%. But uh, Jonathan, I appreciate you joining me on an absolutely fantastic Monday after one of the greatest Green Bay Packer wins ever, at, at least until next week. God bless America. Yeah, God bless America. Um, see, America's already been great. There's there's another sign that America has, <laughs> al- has always been great. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>